0: Welcome to the Rotman Podcast. This is the first episode of our new series where we catch up with Rotman professors examining the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on their respective industries. Shavi, this was a very fun and very insightful episode.
1: It was definitely very interesting to record. I will say I'm definitely considering a career in urban development in cities, and I think I know what elective I'm taking next year.
0: Absolutely. And it is something that we're going to be exploring over the next couple of weeks and choosing what uh, what courses we're interested in. I think this has added a wrench into my plans. I thought I had an idea <laughs> of what I was going to do, but uh, I'm going to have to think about changing things around a little bit. And, and Vaishnavi, perhaps uh, an upcoming episode as well, where we dig into some of our elective ideas, choices, and uh, maybe even a special guest from uh, the mba office to help us out
1: and we'll lay it out for everyone that's nervous about coming into the program not knowing what happens after the core courses we're pretty nervous too but we'll figure it out together
0: nervous but excited and thank you everyone for listening and giving us feedback and please continue to do so using our our link in our instagram bio and uh, i think without further ado veish let's jump right into our conversation with professor richard florida
1: So we're incredibly excited today to welcome Professor Richard Florida to the Rotman Podcast. Professor Florida is what you would call a household name in the urban planning world. He is a professor of economic analysis and policy at the Rotman School of Management, distinguished scholar in residence at the School of Cities at the University of Toronto, and chief urbanist in the Creative Destruction Lab. Professor Florida is also a global best-selling writer and journalist, co-founder of the City Lab, and founder of the Creative Class Group. Professor, thanks so much for being on the Rotman Podcast. It's great to have you on the show.
2: Yeah, I've been a member of the Rotman family now for... 13, 14 years. Time goes really fast. You know, when I think about it, I grew up in New Jersey and I lived in New Jersey for 21 years. You know, with my, my parents' house for 17 and then university. But I think Toronto is place I've lived in and maybe Pittsburgh. I taught at Carnegie Mellon or getting close to Tide. But yeah, I've been around the Robin School for a while now. And for folks who might not be familiar with the Robbins School, it's a pretty amazing place.
1: We think so as well. <laughs> So for the audience that may not be familiar with their background, can you maybe walk us through your journey to becoming, I guess, one of the leading thinkers of our time around cities?
2: Yeah, there goes goes the podcast. Now it's over 45 minutes of me rambling. (laughs) The most important thing for folks to think about me is that I was born in Newark, New Jersey. And if you don't know about Newark, New Jersey, it's an outlying city. It's a city in itself. You know, there's an airport in it. You've probably flown into it if you take Porter Airlines outside of New York. But it was a big manufacturing center, one of the center of the American Industrial Revolution, along with Boston and New Jersey communities like Patterson. And then, it went, you know, it just fell apart. So I was born in Newark in the late 1950s. My dad only had a seventh grade education. He worked in a factory, Italian-American. All my relatives lived in Newark. So Newark was kind of a bustling city. And then I watched it just fall apart. You know, I watched this incredible out-migration of work, of business, of people- of retail to malls, my dad's factory where he worked, which was this big eyeglass factory, closed down. I saw the riots. I saw the civil unrest as a kid with my dad. You know, we're driving through Newark and the- Please shut us down. So I think then I thought cities were for dead. And, you know, when I went to university at Rutgers, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And a professor still around, still looks the same, you know, professors sometimes never age, said, why don't you take the Amtrak train and go to New York City and kind of see what's happening in New York and walk through the Soho and try back in the village. And I was just captivated by what I saw in New York as a, you know, an 18 year old. And I think from there I got the bug and, you know, I think I just got lucky. I was just a typical academic teaching at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. And I got this idea looking at Pittsburgh and the fact that Carnegie Mellon was leading place in software and artificial intelligence and computing in the internet, in internet search, in internet video search, in making these kind of things we now know of like as a Fitbit, they called a company called Body Media. We, we were a leader in so much technology, but we were never developing it into a, a cluster like the San Francisco Bay Area or Boston. And uh, I remember one class class, I asked my students, my graduate students at the time in business, public policy engineering, because Carnegie Mellon's a small school, you know, where are you going to go when you graduate? And in contrast to the Rotman School, where like 98% of hands say Toronto, one hand said Pittsburgh, everybody else said San Francisco or Austin or New York, or well, why? I want to go to a city that's vibrant, that has energy, that's exciting. And that's when I got the idea to write a book that was ultimately titled The Rise of the Creative Class back in 2002. And that book kind of propelled me out of obscurity into whatever you would call a public intellectual, you know, I started to give speeches, I started to meet more people, cities asked me to come. And yeah, from then it was kind of a rocket ride. And then I think in 2007, I got the offer by the then Dean Roger Martin to come up to Rotman, which has been, I mean, coming to Rotman has been great. University of Toronto has been great, but coming to Toronto has been even better. So I think coming to Toronto was sort of the best move that we made. And yeah, it's been great.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Professor. And in this 2002 book, The Rise of the Creative Class, of course, the theory that you posit the creative class theory and that economic growth is spurred by the presence of creative individuals. How do you think this holds relevance today, especially given the COVID-19
2: pandemic? Well, I think two things. One, I think I wholly underestimated the velocity and ferocity of what we would call the urban revival. And in, 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 you know, if you read the criticism of that book that came out in two thousand and two, it's, it's Florida's lost his mind. People aren't going to move back to cities. They're all going to go to suburbs. The first time there's a downturn, this is going to all fade away. But then you look at the research of somebody like our colleague Nate Baum Snow, who has pretty much documented that not only after 2000, but after 2010, there has been this accelerated movement back to cities. And, you know, people didn't believe that. And then the 2020 U.S. Census comes out. and In fact, they found that the 20 largest cities all grew and that New York City, the place that was supposed to die again, grew the most. I think that the one thing that I talked about in that book and then wrote about in a a subsequent 2003 essay was the rise in urban inequality. And what we found in, in that research done at that time was that if you look at the most creative places that have the highest concentration of either highly educated people or people who work in the occupations we call the creative or knowledge professional class, science, technology, engineering, architecture, arts, music, culture, blah, 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 management, finance, those places tended to be most unequal. So I think the biggest thing to my mind has been how this rise of the creative economy and the urban orientation of the creative class has really caused our society to kind of split, not only split socioeconomically, but split by geography. And by the way, I kind of learned that in Toronto, there was a, a great scholar called David Hilchansky who wrote this incredible report back a dozen years ago called The Three Cities of Toronto in which he really documented the great geographic divides between more highly educated or advantaged people or people I call the creative class and then less advantaged working or service class workers. And we saw that in Toronto kind of quite viscerally with the rise of Rob Ford, kind of the original populist. You know, I, I think right now, I don't want to sound hubristic, but I feel somewhat vindicated And I think if one thing the pandemic has shown is that these shifts in the nature of work, you know, when I started writing Rise of the Creative Class, everybody wore a suit and tie. And if you were a consultant or worked in management, you know, I cut my ponytail off and took my earring out and stopped playing my guitar. And it was very conformist, still organization, man, society. And I was writing about more flexible workplaces and this blurring the lines between work and life. That has really accelerated. And the pandemic has super accelerated. Let me tell you how I see this. I do a lot of Zooms. And I do a lot of Zoom presentations and meetings. And invariably, I will do a Zoom with somebody at a big financial firm, a Goldman Sachs, a big real estate firm, whatever, a big corporation. And the person's picture will come on. And it will be somebody with a tie and schoolboy glasses and a business suit. And then the person comes on. And that person either has a buzz cut or long hair and a beard. And a t- <laughs> This kind of change in the nature and rhythms of how we work, whether we call that remote work, or remote work from home, this more flexible style of working that I associated with the creative class. What the pandemic has done is it's accentuated these divides, but I think it's given the creative class a lot more power in the workplace. And so what I saw then as a trend has just accelerated. So I think this trend towards talent being the key variable in cities where talent having more power in the workplace, I think that the pandemic has accelerated that, but accelerated the divides, right? If the 20 or 25 or 30% of us who do creative class work are more empowered, the remaining two thirds of society have less and that divide has gotten more yawning.
1: I guess talking about this divide a little bit further, in your most recent book, The New Urban Crisis, I guess you identified the deepening segregation and the hollowing out of the traditional middle class per se and widening the wealth gaps as holding cities back. How do we fix something like that now that we've kind of experienced COVID and seen the impact of that?
2: well we still aren't having a conversation about that whether that's in canada or the united states and europe people are ignoring this it's really interesting so when i wrote rise of the creative class i quickly had a platform was invited to cities to talk about all the things mayors could do to attract the creative class or chambers of commerce the business community whether that was be more open minded and tolerant you know be more accepting of the gay community whatever focus on arts and cultural development build bike paths whatever that is I wrote the book, The New Urban Crisis, to try to have a conversation about what we needed to do to build more equitable, inclusive cities. And if we were attracting the creative class, how to take that other 50 or 60% and level that up, create better jobs for service workers, pay them more. And when you pay them more, they're more involved. Just like in the factories, we learned, that's my early research, when workers are paid better, they're involved in their work. They not only do a better job, they're involved in innovation. They're more productive. They increase profits. That conversation is really hard to get started anywhere in the world, including Canada. And so we need to begin to have a conversation about how to build a more equitable society. And here's the rub. If you look back at the next most comparable period in history, that would take you back to the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu, which ravaged North America and the world in 1918, 1919, was followed not by a period of great introspection and a focus on equity and inclusion. It was followed by the freaking Roaring Twenties, the period which you would argue the Great Gatsby, kind of a great party and and a place that a, a period that was arguably the most unequal time in North American or global society until now. And and so you look at, and then how, how long did it take? Well, it took till the New Deal and the Great Depression and the post-war era to kind of think about how do you turn factory jobs into middle-class jobs? You know, I, I have a feeling we're getting a great replay of that. Instead of a period of re- introspection and thinking about how to build more equitable cities, we're not thinking about that at all. In fact the big point of that book was we live not only in a winner-take-all economy, live in a winner-take-all geography. Cities like Toronto and New York and San Francisco, and maybe you could add Miami and Austin to that mix now, but it's not everywhere, are gaining a lot and other places are falling further behind. And, and if you look at just the returns, I mean, you, the super rich are killing it. You know, The returns to the super rich or the billionaire class. And then if you take the creative class, the creative class a third is doing okay. And the rest of society is sinking. So my great fear is that we move into the roaring 2020s. And instead of having a co- robust conversation about what we need to lift all boats, we end up with a yawning divide. And, and and in a polarized society, I mean, you could point to the United States and you could point to Donald Trump and you could point to the divide and what's happening in Texas. But, you know, look at Canada. We're not immune to this. Rob Ford is arguably the first populist mayor, and certainly the first populist mayor of a big city, but you look at what's happening in this election and the anti-mask protests, what happened to Prime Minister Trudeau just a little while ago on the, when people threw, they said stones, it was pebbles at him. You know, we're not immune to this thing. We think we're immune to it in Canada and we have a lot of things going for it, but we're not We're not completely immune to it. So I think this division, as we come out of the pandemic, is likely to grow bigger. And I, I don't see us having a really a robust conversation I think the conversation is too political in the sense that it's become so polarized. And so on the right, you have this kind of zeal for whatever, libertarianism or freedom, don't tread on me. And on the left, you have this kind of crusade for social justice. But there's a big middle that if you could just say... If we could raise more boats, we'd have a more innovative society, but that middle seems to be falling apart. And so I think somehow we got to get back to that middle and say that if we want a better society, a better society for you and your kids, we can't just lift a few boats. We have to lift a lot of boats. No, it's certainly, and do you think any of the data that might have been collected
0: during the last 18 plus months of the pandemic, and you said, you mentioned that this will be exacerbated even further after the the pandemic, and it Certainly might have been over the last couple of months. Do you think any of this data that we would have collected over the last couple of months might help bridge some of this gap, help aid in this conversation that that no one's having? Or is it? uh... No, I think
2: the pandemic, look, 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 the divides in Canada are not nearly as bad. And, you know, as an American, I think the thing that really concerns me, which we haven't experienced, is what I would call the rise in crime and urban disorder. I mean, Toronto still seems like a very cohesive place. I ride my bike all over this city it still seems quite multicultural. The mosaic seems strong. I mean, look, we've had our random share of incidents, but not the kind of chronic crime and urban disorder you see happening in places like Miami or New York or San Francisco or Portland, you know, where the whole social fabric just seems to have But look, I think what we've learned is that the pandemic is an accelerator. It's not a break. And if it's accelerated some trends like work from home, or you know, families going out of the city, particularly in the US to the suburbs, it has really accelerated and exacerbated both socioeconomic and racial inequity. If you look at the impact of the disease of COVID, it's fallen most heavily on essential workers, on service workers, on factory workers, disadvantaged minorities, You know, their rates of getting the disease four and five times, rates of hospitalization twice, rates of death nearly twice. I mean, it's really reinforced all of these, if you want to call them comorbidities or you know socioeconomic inequities. The fact that Less advantaged people have longer commutes, work in more crowded conditions, live in more overcrowded housing, are more exposed to disease, have more comorbidities, have less, even even in Canada, less access to good health care. So, yeah, it, it's made us, I think, realize we're a more inequitable society. But But, you know... You would wish that would bring people together, but instead, it's, it's kind of caused people on the right to say, the heck with that. Just give us our freedom. We don't want to wear a mask. The hell with everybody else. We want to be free. And I think, look, I think part of that was the lockdowns, and we can come back to that if we want to. And then on the left, it's been just the crusade for social justice. I'm in that space, but there are a lot of people who turned off by that and feel left behind. You know, I, I do think the lockdowns compounded this, and I even find myself feeling this. You know, I'm really careful. I was telling you guys before we went on the podcast, I've not been, the first time I'm going to be on a commercial flight is September of 2021. I wasn't on a commercial flight for a year and a half. I didn't go to meetings in person. I'm vaccinated. Still worried. I have little kids still worried about them, but I don't like a lockdown. And I don't like government telling me I have to quarantine or I have to do this. I know I can do that myself and be responsible. So I think the lockdown for a lot of people who skew kind of towards freedom and liberty, I'm I'm not saying that's the right thing. It just really made them mad. And I think here's—I don't want to make the case for the Swedish model, but when I go back and look at what the Swedes said early on and why they didn't want to go to a lockdown, even though they knew they were hit by the first wave very hard because they were exposed to what happened in Italy—and what they said was, "This isn't about our economy. It's the fact that if you lock people down, a lot of people get really angry and they go populist." You can hear the interviews, and so we'll manage it by you know making, giving people good information and letting them manage it as much they can. But we don't want to see our society bust apart. And I think one of the the adverse consequences of the lockdowns or restrictions is they cause this group, the libertarian group, the people who care a lot about personal liberty, to kind of go bonkers. And and I think we're going to have to live with that for a while. I think it's skewed our politics in ways that none of us would have expected because I think most of us would have expected that people wanted to be smart and careful.
1: Going back to a point you just made earlier about the difference that you can definitely see between the middle class and the lower class, especially when it comes to medical care. I think before there was a lot of advocacy from, you know, black women about facing, you know, three to four times higher morbidity rates when they're giving birth in a hospital. You're saying now it's a little bit more obvious that these sort of problems are happening. Is there anything that Canada can do that's you know low hanging fruit when it comes to the design of the cities to fix this sort of issue, especially now that it's even more evident than it was before?
2: Yeah. Let me, let me tell a personal story. So I grew up in the working class. My dad had a seventh grade education. My dad worked in a factory. So I was born in Newark and grew up in a working class suburb. It's kind of, if you watch The Sopranos, just like that you know, Italian-American, Irish-American, Jewish-American. So I know what it's like to be in the working class. But in that society, there were smaller divisions. So for example, my dad who worked in a factory, lived next door. My mom's, my mom had seven sisters. My mom was the youngest. Her next youngest sister, my aunt, married a guy, Italian guy, who put himself through school through night and was a super high executive at Colgate-Palmolive. Could have went to the Rodman School, but didn't. Went to Newark College of Engineering. They were best friends, and I would always ask them, like, "Hold on, you, Dad, you're a factory worker. Uncle Walt, you're a high executive." My Uncle Walt would say, "Yeah, but why would I want to move to some fancy schmancy suburb? I love, I love your Dad and your Mom, and that's my family." But there were definitely smaller divisions. Even if you look at CEO compensation, you know, it was a couple of times, ten times, twenty. Now, now it's hundreds and hundreds of times. The gaps are so yawning in our society. And when I look at my aunt and uncle's house and my parents' house, it can kind of look. Now you look at where people live. The working class and less advantaged people live in cramped houses, and then people live in you know the equivalent of mansions. So the divides have become bigger, and those divides have just become you know worse and worse and worse and magnified. So people are living on different planets in different worlds. Look from the point of view of what we can do, I think a couple things. I think we've got to put focus on elevating those low-wage service jobs. You know, I've been talking about this in Canada, too. Canada doesn't want to pay attention to this. U.S. doesn't want to pay attention to this. That we now know that the same way that we made men, my dad always told me this story. He said, you know, I, I started work in a factory in the 30s. It took me, my six siblings, your grandma and granddad to make a living wage. I went off to serve in World War II. I came back from the war. Franklin Roosevelt had became president. We had the union movement, and all of a sudden, I had a good job. I could buy a house. I could marry your mom. I could put your boys through school and and university and send you off into the middle class. The same equivalent jobs today are these 50% of jobs in retail, clerical, office work, essential services that we just have to pay people more. And I always say the same thing. What would you rather do? Pay people more who make your car or make your television set or your laptop, the factory workers, or pay people more who take care of your kids, or your aging parents, to me it's, an or or who make your food. It's a no-brainer. The second thing which you asked specifically is about healthcare. Both my kids were born in Toronto, and let me say this. In the United States, if our kids had been born in the United States, we would have had like the four seasons treatment, private room, champagne breakfast, blah, 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 because we could afford private healthcare. In Toronto, we were probably the only middle-class people in labor and delivery, and around us were people far less advantaged who got the same Exact care, the same exact care as us. So, look, I think that is a good thing. I think the other thing we need to do, though, is we need to have a bigger conversation about bolstering our healthcare system. I think one of the things the pandemic has shown is that our healthcare system is superb, but we don't have enough capacity, right? I don't think we want the excess capacity of the U.S., where there's ICU beds on top of ICU beds, and who cares? But I think it's shown that that across the board, and particularly disadvantaged neighborhoods, we probably have to do more to add capacity. And I think that's what we're up against—that we just don't have the capacity. And when you look at our healthcare providers, you have lots of doc. I mean, our healthcare providers are really stressed out. You look at the workload that they carry, not to say that people in the US work, they work really hard, but man, I think our healthcare system is stressed in ways. So I think elevating service jobs, and and especially in a pandemic prone world, spending a little bit more money at the margin to build more, that's a conversation we need to be having. What is the kind of healthcare system we need in a pandemic prone world so that we could avoid... Maybe we could avoid a little, have a little bit less restriction and or lockdown if we have that capacity and then how to build that capacity in less advantaged communities. Professor,
0: just following up on that a little bit and considering the fact that, you know, we have the election coming up now in in two weeks. And one of the, the thoughts that we were having was how is the federal government how do they have to step up to address this housing crisis? What are some yep. of the key considerations they have to look at? My question, I guess, is, you know, is that an area of focus? Obviously, it's, it's an important one for, for all voters, and it's a, it's a part of the platform for all parties. Considering the healthcare question uh, that we just raised, and then putting
2: those two together, what are some of the thoughts you might have in terms of uh, where the political parties are? You know, if I look at the two great challenges of my career, the first one we talked about is getting a focus on how to build up lower class service jobs, the new, the new manufacturing jobs, if fuel the new working class jobs, and how do we elevate those jobs and make them good middle class jobs. It's been a hard conversation to start, it's been really difficult. The second part of that conversation, I think, is is more than just policy focus, and it's something I've been involved in in Canada since I've come here. How do we shift power, and and in a Canadian sense, I think it's not just the federal government, away from the the provinces, if you will, particularly, and to local municipalities? How how do we give the GTA, Montreal, Vancouver, Hamilton, Winnipeg, Edmonton, how do we give those places relatively more power and how do we what they call so-called devolve power to our metropolitan areas and cities? And I think that's something that we've we've tried. look, look I've been really part of this thing trying to create a new partnership between the federal government and the cities. It's not gone that well. And, and to be honest, the Trudeau administration has waved its hands at this, but not really done enough. It's been it's kind of scared. And again, the provinces have tremendous power in our, our federalist, Canadian federalist system. But I think the real issue that we've got to grapple with is somehow shifting, devolving power away from the federal government and the provinces. We don't have the issues here that are in Texas, you know, where, where you have this renegade right-wing governor who's taking power away from the cities. But it's, it's pretty bad. And, and I think the reason it's bad is because there's a, a classic economist called Charles Thibault who invented this phrase called vote with your feet. And the most powerful vote we have in life is to vote with our feet. If we don't, and what Thibault was arguing in this idea was that you picked a place, if you're young, you picked a vibrant city where you can meet lots of people, even if taxes were high and you had a small apartment and you could get a good job. When you got older, you needed more space and you wanted better schools, so you moved to a suburb, blah, 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 blah. So what we found is in advanced societies, people pick the communities that best fit their needs. So they vote with their feet. You don't want a higher level of government preempting that package of services and policies and amenities. You want to be able to get that where you get it, pay the taxes for the services you want. So look, I think we need more of a flourishing of, of local choice, and we need more power to the local level. And you know, if you just look at the survey data... People are very dissatisfied with federal governments around the world, particularly in the United States. They're they're about half half on provincial or state governments. People are super satisfied generally. You know, seventy five or eighty percent or more vote of confidence in their local leadership. So I think that's the biggest issue. And then and then you know, look the housing crisis in Toronto and the housing prices and unaffordably in Toronto is very different than the housing situation in Edmonton or Winnipeg or Saskatoon or Regina or Halifax. So so places fill different kinds of challenges. And I think we should give places the flexibility. And by the way, we're sending our revenues to the provincial level. We're sending our revenues to the federal level. It's not like we're asking them to give them back. I think the real thing is that we're just asking to keep not all, but relatively more so that we can solve our own problems. I think that's the big shift. And, And again, it's one that's really hard to ignite.
1: I think carrying along that same line of of the provincial versus the federal government at this point, I'm really curious to get your take on specifically the provincial policies that have been implemented recently, like the inclusionary zoning and limiting the appeals of development around rapid transit stations. Do you think there is any sort of downside to what seems like an overuse of the ministerial zoning order system to advance development projects?
2: You know, that's a thorny question. And there'd be lots of people like me who would make the argument that if cities are going to be nimby, not in my backyard, and they're going to be captured by these, these activists who don't want development, that the province should be able to override them. I'm on the fence on that. I, I kind of think you've got to work this out locally. Preemption is a big issue. And once you get it going, it becomes a big problem. I know some of my developer friends are not going to be happy to hear that. But look, I, I think most of these things are done better locally. And I think the province, there's a concept in public finance or in urbanism or in economics called subsidiarity. And subsidiarity means things should be done at the level that they fit best. So if you take, like you look at a company, the the CEO shouldn't be making decisions about the factory floor. The factory workers on the factory floor should be given and empowered the ability to change the production technology, change the assembly line. And that's what the Japanese figured out. And that's why it became so competitive. And that should be done. You should give workers the power to do that on the factory floor. The same thing's true of cities. The place, people who know best about how to develop, what to do, are local people. And yeah, people are nervous about that. People are concerned about that. People say, no, I don't want that here. But we we have to work on that. You know, I think one of the the curveballs the pandemic throws is that it really does reduce some of the demand for vertical urban space. You know, I, I think that clearly the big shift in the pandemic is the shift to remote work, even whether, whether, whether people wanted to believe this or not. At least 20% of working days are going to be done from home, up from less than 5% or done remotely, maybe not from home. Uh, and, you know, people with families, like it or not, in North America, maybe more in the United States than Canada, typically want more space and more affordable fit space tends to be not in the city center. And not in condos and apartments, it tends to be at the suburban or with remote work at the ex-urban fringe. So now you've opened up places like Prince Edward County. I'm just making this up, but you know, to development. So and, and the other thing that's really daunting, if you look at this pandemic, it has really reduced demand from transit. You know, there has been a massive shift to the private car, bigger than anyone and more enduring than anyone could have suspected. So those are things we really have to think about. Is there ways that we can get people back to using trains and transit? Is that a cyclical or secular trend? How how does a transit system work if not everyone is working downtown nine to five every day? How is that transit system repositioned? How do we remake our central business district if it's not just filled with office towers? And, you know, I think on that note, if you ask me what are the most sterile places of cities and the places that I would avoid the most, it was the central business districts. They're boring. There's not a lot of light. You know, they're not exciting. Jane Jacobs bemoan these places. So maybe we have an opportunity to remake central business districts that are much more, and more vibrant, much more live work, much more about... And I think when we think about cities, the real thing about cities, I think, is not just a container to live and not just a container to work and plug in your laptop. I think the real thing that makes cities different is that they're connection machines. That what makes Toronto or New York or London different is that they're places people come to connect. And I'll just make this again personal. I've always worked remotely. I've always had a home office set up. I've never understood, like, I mean, I go to my office at Rotman, but I tend not to work there. I tend to use it as a place to meet with people. And I tend not only to meet with people in my office, but go to coffee shops or restaurants and really use that as a way to kind of connect. I think that connective fiber, we're going to find that's more and more what cities are about in the future, that 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 it's that connection capacity. So I think giving cities the power to rebuild themselves and remake themselves and the fiscal power to do that, that's our the key thing on our agenda.
0: So shifting a little bit into the Rotman uh, classes and experience and what we've been, what we've had over the last couple of months for listeners of the podcast, prospective students, current students that might be interested in these areas of economic policy and strategy, and they want to get more involved in Rotman, are there any courses or clubs
2: that you might recommend uh, or suggest for for students to explore? To to my mind, like, I just think Rotman is the best place to be. And trust me, I could go other places. And I had a distinguished professorship at NYU and I love New York City. And I've decided to stay at Rotman. I just think Rotman is a great place. It's, it's big enough, but it's not too big. That means you have lots of options, both as a professor and a student. But it's in, I don't know. I mean, I can't think of a better city than Toronto to be a student in, especially now. And, and the reason is, there's just a lot more urban disorder and crime in U.S. cities. There's very little of it. You know, I, I think the other thing for students is that if you're interested in kind of creativity, innovation, and urbanism in a business school, Now, probably if you're interested in finance or marketing or operations, there are probably other business schools that are just as good and maybe a few that are even better. But if you're interested in creativity, innovation, urbanism, whatever, urban economic development in a business school, there is no place better. You know, it's not just me. It's people like Nate Bound Snow or Will Strange Mm -hmm. or or folks in the creative destruction lab like Ajay Agarwal or Mara Letterman or Josh Gant. I mean, I can go on and on about the amazing array of colleagues. And then you're in a big university. You know, you mentioned that I helped form the School of Cities, the first one ever in the world. But, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of people who teach courses in urbanism. You know, the other thing, it's really interesting, guys. So I didn't know what Zoom was in February 2020. I've taught my course now twice. Now, I tend to teach one course a year. I may go up to two. I I might start teaching for folks a commerce course that's our undergraduates, but I have enough research buyout and funding. I've typically taught one course a year. My Zoom class, which I ran as a five day intensive, so basically five hours a day for five days in the summer, got the best course reviews of my life. Now, I keep asking myself why. I I think part of that is that you and your peers took pity on me, like and said, Oh my God, (laughs) the guy's got to teach remotely. We got to give him a good review. But, But I think I've learned something. And that is there's an aspect to remote that's beneficial, which is the ability to bring in guests from all over the world. So I think as we get back to a new normal. I'm going to want to figure out ways to teach in person and to, because everyone says the same thing. You, you were talking about this. We miss going to meet each other. We miss all the, the connection of being in MBA school. We miss you know, meeting other students and having face-to-face time with professors. I think we'll get back to that, but I think there's an element of the remote, which is, I don't know how you use that technology in the classroom, but I think we're going to figure it out so that I can bring in mayors and guests from all over the world and have this invigorating experience. The other thing I really think I've learned personally is my class is better done in an in, in intensive mode. Whenever I've had the gift of being able to teach, and I've done it three times. I did one class from NYU as an intensive in Abu Dhabi. They asked me to go over there and teach it during our spring break. And I've done twice in Rotman as an intensive. I've gotten the highest ratings. That's telling me something, that, that my ability to transfer information and knowledge is better done in small blocks. where where I can create tremendous enthusiasm and passion. So yeah, I I think that we've learned a few things about how to do things better. And in my case, I think it's gonna be a mixture of remote and live, and I think field experiences. I think the other thing I'd like to do in a live class now is get people to go with me into the city. Do you know what I'm saying? Field trip kind of stuff. And then the second part, I think that's really important for me is an intensive. I think I work better in an intensive model, but look, People talk about the effect of the pandemic on where we live and how we live. People talk about the effect of the pandemic on how we work and the shift to remote work and work from home. I think the biggest effect on the pandemic that we're going to see 20 years in the future is how we learn and how we educate people. This is the one part of society that hasn't changed in centuries. And this technology gives us the ability to do things differently and not supplant, but do things differently better. And so I would say the same thing about education, graduate education that I say for cities It's not sitting in the classroom together, just like it's not sitting in the office together. It's whatever the connective elements of education are. What are the things that we really need to do together? How do I share information with you better live? What are the things we do? And when people ask me, they say, I want to get to know you better. I want to sit down and have coffee with you. You know, the PowerPoint slide, eh. You know what I'm saying? It's fine, but you could see that. I think there's got to be some way that we figure out how to use, edu- just like a city, I think education in cities are very similar. How do we focus on the connective aspect and the network building aspect? And I think that, that is something that I'm grappling with and finding I'm learning a ton in this pandemic.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Professor. And both Vaishnavi and I are wrapping up our core courses and are right now selecting electives for uh for the future so we're excited and keeping an eye out on on some of those and it's funny your comment on on the uh, intensive week looking back at the first year of, our, of the program i think the course that we had in that january intensive week we did a strategy with professor rowley was one of the most both challenging but also exciting ones because of that you know regular for six days in a row you have five hours everyone's together
2: and everyone's working it was fantastic i loved it you know, the other thing I'd like to do on the education, this is not for Rotman, but I do think that every MBA student, I've written the Harvard Business Year about this, that every MBA student, every board director needs to understand cities. That, in fact, that we need kind of a C-suite, like if you have a chief information officer and a chief marketing officer and a chief, you need a chief location officer. That That it is clear to me these decisions about where you locate, how you distribute work. And you can't outsource that to a consulting firm or a real estate consultant. That, that is really like, if you think about it, talent, attracting talent is probably the biggest expense. And then the, 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 the real estate footprint, which is critical to attracting talent. And So I think every MBA student needs that basis. And I think we need an executive training program, but I think every undergraduate student needs this. So if you ask me what I think would be another thing we could do, you know, I think we need these big undergraduate classes just in, you know the city or how and, how and where you live. And I think every undergraduate needs to be to that. And you can do that as a big, giant class. You know, you do that with a thousand students, bringing them together to, to think about how and where they're going to, because I actually, you know, I wrote a book about this and this is an assignment in my class. If any of you ever decide to take this, the first assignment in my class is based on this. How do you, where will you, and how will you decide where you're going to live and work post-graduation? And the argument I make to everyone is this is the single most important decision you'll make, that there is no more important decision that you'll ever make than where you live and work and why. You know, people say, well, the decision of a life partner is, but you're going to find that life partner in a particular geographic area. Well, you know, getting a job and having a job. Well, you don't, you get a job based on a network and that's also embedded in place. So that, that this choice of where you live, which people tend to make randomly on an ad hoc basis, I think it's the most significant choice you'll ever make. And so I think we need a better structured way of thinking about this. So I think all MBA students need to think about that. Corporate leadership needs to think about that and and students in college need to be exposed to it. So that's another thing I hope to be able to do
1: more of. I think that's a really good point. Just preparing for this call right here. Phil and I don't really have a great understanding of, you know, cities and urban development, but just preparing for this call, we came across so many things where we were like, we never thought of this. Like, these are things that we should be thinking about, but we, we haven't really thought of this. We're heard of this. So I think that's a, that's a really important point you're making here. It's definitely really important.
2: Yeah. And I think, I think we're all becoming a, like, look, there's not a lot of silver lining in this pandemic. For me, the silver lining is I have a four and a five-year-old. They say kids until four, zero to four are the critical years. I spent half those years with them, not traveling, being at home every day, right? So that's a big deal. The second you know, silver lining of the pandemic is that it's made us think a lot more and a lot harder about how and where we live and how we work. All the things I've been writing about in a book called Who's Your City, that's all people want to talk about. Not because I'm an expert, like, where do I live? Should I move? Should I leave Toronto? Should I go to a suburb? Should I go to Prince edward County in the United States? Should I go to Bozeman? Should I go to Jackson Hole? Should I move to Miami? Should I move to Austin? Should I move to Nashville? Should I move to the Hudson Valley? So people are now thinking about how we live and work in a way they never did before Yeah. And by the way, look, there's no better place to understand this than the Rotman School. I mean, Harvard Business School doesn't do this better than us. MIT doesn't do this better than us. You know, Columbia doesn't do it. We we do this the best. So, yeah. And we should be proud of the fact that we somehow have arrayed this incredible group of people in core business subjects. But we're big enough to have this periphery of people like me doing this other stuff that's relevant to business, but not at the exact, it's becoming more core, but not at the exact core. So we're kind of lucky. And look, I, I, you know, back to, I don't think there's any better place to go to school. Look, we're now 18th in the freaking world at the university of Toronto. Think about that. Like according to the times higher education, and I just did the thing, they did it in Toronto. So I did it virtually. Like 18th in the world, second best public university in the, in the world, only Berkeley is better you know, that's a big deal. Um, and it's a big university in a great city. So yeah, I, I couldn't think of any better place to kind of, and I, I realized that I belong in a business school. Like for years, I thought maybe I fit in a city planning program or a public policy program. I realized that I fit better in a business school. And by the way, I think part of that is that business schools are just less ideological. I think that, that, that so much of social science, and I skew very far left, I'm a professor, we all do, that business schools, there's something like engineering schools about them, maybe because they're training you, that, that there is ideology, but not as extensive or as expressive, and that people really go based more on facts. That's a good thing for somebody like me, I think. I think, you know, even if I skew more left and some of my colleagues skew more conservative, we have this core of believing facts, that's a good thing about business schools. We haven't been so ideologically divided as some of the other. So I, I think for all those reasons, I just fit better in a business school. And what I've noticed, these, these not just MBA programs, but these commerce programs, or I have nieces and nephews in the States, they want to go to places like Wharton or the Ross School at the University of Michigan. Now, some are saying Rotman Commerce, you know, coming from the States. There is some appeal for young people. And I think part of it is they could get a job, but part of it is it's not so ideological. It, it is a place where you can learn things and have an open conversation. Those are all the things I love about the Ramen School.
1: We love a lot of those things. The school is <laughs> about. <laughs> um, just to wrap things up here, I think uh, we and our listeners would love to kind of get to know you on a more personal level. So we have a couple questions that we want to maybe ask and answer them as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. So, just to get started, first of all, how do you take your morning coffee? Black. Black.
2: And, and, and the whole pot. And the whole pot. <laughs> like when I'm in a hotel, I order the whole pot. Right. Okay. And here it is. And it's, you know, we're taping this at 1051 and here it is.
1: <laughs> what is your go-to fitness regimen?
2: I'm a cyclist. And so I, I started to gain weight in my late thirties, which is very typical. And at that point I had to think, what did I like to do when I was a kid? And I liked to ride my 10 speed. So I bought a road bike and that's what I do. And, and I ride. By the way, Toronto is the best place to ride a road bike because you don't have to ride on the road. We have the great ravine trails and we go out to the spit and you can really avoid cars. I think it's the greatest cycling environment I've ever been in. So, yeah, I ride a road bike. and Now, increasingly, I ride not only a standard road bike, but a a gravel bike. I do that. I I do it almost every day. I'm going to do it today.
1: Love it. What is your favorite place to think on campus?
2: My house. Um, I don't go to campus to think. And I'm being really honest with you. I go to campus to connect. I think at home or I think, you know where I would think on campus, like on Philosopher's Walk. I, I really find that this idea of getting into nature as an urbanist. I realize I'm not an urbanist. I'm a naturalist. That going into the ravines, if I want to think, I either go on my bike or go into for a walk, even better go for a walk in the ravines. Um, And then I go to campus to connect with my colleagues and connect not just with my colleagues, but people in the Toronto environment, right? Real estate developers, commissioners, counselors, mayor type people, economic developers. Yeah, I use the campus and we, by the way, it's like the greatest urban campus on the planet. That's what I use it to. My office isn't a bad place to think. The problem with offices is, and this isn't meant, is that you get interrupted. Right here on the third floor of my house, nobody's going to interrupt me. Not even my kids are gonna come up this far. In campus, you get inter- So I, I think better at home and I connect better on campus.
1: What is the best book you've read? Verizon,
2: right, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, probably the book that has most changed my life. Well, there's several. In my work, what I've tried to do is blend the insights of Jane Jacobs. So I would say The Economy of Cities, her, not the Death and Life of Great American Cities, her book, The Economy of Cities. And then I would say either like some classic work by Karl Marx or Joseph Schumpeter. I've tried to blend the insights of Jane Jacobs on cities with the insights of Joseph Schumpeter or Karl Marx on how capitalism evolves and innovates. Other than that, Peter Drucker or Dan Bell, his book on post-industrial society or Drucker's book on the knowledge economy, those would be the ones that have really shaped my thinking.
1: Last on my list, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received?
2: My parents were so strict and we were so poor and, and they were like, you know, study hard, get ahead, get a good education. That's pretty good advice. Don't get me wrong. But I think it's, you know, find something you love and do it. And the one I would add to that is find a place you love. Do it and find something you love and find a place you love. And let me let me say this in two ways. In my mind, growing up, I was supposed to be a guitar player. That's what I was supposed to be. I was supposed to be the next coming of Jimi Hendrix or Eric Clapton. That's what I did. That's what I spent my days doing. My my brother's a great drummer. We had bands all the way through college and graduate school. And then at some point, I realized that I was probably too young. I was pretty good, but probably not going to be the next coming of Jimi Hendrix or I Clapton. And in music at that time, there was a lot of dysfunction, a lot of drug use and stuff I just didn't like. So then I had to figure out what I wanted to do. And well, what was it? When I did that little thing that I mentioned, that tour of New York City and saw the city, I realized that. I love cities, maybe not as much as I love guitar. So I found something very early, and my field was terrible. The field of urbanism when I started was a backwater field. It was in very small departments. People weren't paid a lot of money. People didn't write best-selling books, aside from Jane Jacobs, who was outside of the academy. And even that had fallen out of favor. People thought cities were dead. I just loved it. And and because I kept plugging away on it and plugging away at it and and I don't know. I got lucky. City started to come back. I hit. I got a hit. I wrote a book that was important for some reason. I wrote a lot of things and boom. So I think if you find something you love and you keep plugging away at it and you're resilient. Sorry for the long-winded answer, but maybe it's the resilient part just getting back up. You know, I wrote so many books that nobody bought and then I wrote a book that became a hit. It's just like playing music, you know, most of the stuff you write doesn't become a hit and then one thing be one hit wonder look, I think, and then just keep doing it and doing it and building, building up a network. And so, yeah, I think that's what you have to do, but it has to be something you really, if you don't do something you can. And for you guys, look, I get this every year, another MBA student or master's student or public policy student calls me up There's zooms now on the brink of tears Why did I take that job only for the money? And I thought it was going to solve all my problems, but I hate it. And I want to do something. Well, do something you're more passionate about it. The money will follow. I made 18K a year. Think about that. As a beginning assistant professor, I made $18,000 a year. And I lived month to month. But I loved every day of what I was doing. And you'll find a way to make it work. So that's what I think is the most important thing.
0: Thank you so much, Professor, for that uh, perspective and and insight. And overall, just thank you so much for your time. We went uh, over what we had agreed, and we really appreciate it. It was wonderful speaking to you and learning from you. And we hope to be able to visit you in your office, perhaps, when we're back in the
2: building. (laughs) We'll see each other soon. Thanks for having me, and best of luck with the podcast. I love what you're doing.
1: it for the episode. Thank you for listening to the Rotman podcast. Be sure to follow us at the Rotman podcast on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on the latest in the club and all upcoming podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on all major streaming platforms to listen to new episodes.